American history is full of the good, bad, and everything in between. But in the end, these are our stories. Today's episode is another installment of the After Dark series, where your host Jacob sits down with a guest to talk about a specific topic. So pull up a chair and join the history book and a guest for the After Dark series. Hello everyone, welcome to the fourth installment of the After Dark interview series. Today I'm joined by Maggie from Harper's Ferry National Park here to talk about all things Harper's Ferry. So Maggie, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no worries. So normally the After Dark series is less question and answer, and it's more of just letting you talk about stuff. But for this one, I, I figured I'd structure the questions a little bit just because I, I have some specific things I want to know about too. Sure. So the first question is, what would you say is the park's main goal for its visitors? I would say our main goal is getting people out to the park, getting them out to experience what we have to offer, you know, whether that's taking them around the museums and exhibits, offering interpretive programming, which interpretation, not like languages or anything like that, more like getting into the nitty gritty for various topics, various subjects that we cover, getting them out onto the hiking trails, getting them to just enjoy their parks. And that kind of ties into the whole goal of the National Park Service in general. Obviously park to park, it's gonna differ like what we want people to see, what we want them to focus on. For Harper's Ferry, I would argue it's going to be learning about the history, getting them down to the exhibits, getting them down onto some of the hiking trails, just getting them out and experiencing the park. Okay. Obviously, you know, the name of the podcast is a history book. So most of these questions are going to be history related. The first one is, who are the Secret Six and what was their role in John Brown's raid? So the Secret Six were a very loosely affiliated group. I think when people hear about the Secret Six initially, there's this idea like, oh, they were really close knit. Obviously, they had all this communication. They were really well funded. Not necessarily. The Secret Six, their names were Jarrett Smith, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, you have Theodore Parker, Samuel Howe, you have Franklin Sanborn, and George Stearns. Out of those six men, only Stearns and Sanborn were the actual wealthy people in that group. The others were just influential individuals. You have ministers, doctors, people who were well-connected within their respective communities, All six men, however, did share this desire, this goal, very pro-abolitionist, this desire to see slavery as an institution removed from the United States in general. And through meeting John Brown, they agreed to provide funding for John Brown's raid. They didn't really necessarily know the nitty gritty details of it but they sympathized, they understood what Brown's message was. They had known about John Brown for a little while. Uh, Obviously Stearns and Sandboard were a little bit more affiliated with Brown, but they agreed to fund his overall plan, overall idea, whatever it would have looked like to them to attempt to abolish the institution of slavery, just send a message, if you will. Mm -hmm. I've read that there's a lot of connection between John Brown and Frederick Douglass as well. Yeah, so Frederick Douglass and Brown definitely moved in similar circles. Brown and Douglass had spoken to each other on several occasions. When Brown was campaigning, moving around 
after the events in Kansas in 1856, he was moving across the Midwest, moving across the North, going through these abolitionist circles, trying to procure funding, trying to procure like-minded individuals who believed in his message, believed in his cause, believed what he wanted to do for the nation. Mm -hmm. And Douglas was in some of those circles and Brown himself spoke with Douglas in an attempt to recruit him for the raid that would occur in Harper's Ferry in 1859. And the, the interaction is pretty well known. It's pretty famous for, for multiple reasons. The two main reasons are going to be Frederick Douglass's right-hand man, who is a man by the name of Shields Green, ends up listening to John Brown, listening to his plight, his message. And Shields Green agrees to go with John Brown and is one of the raiders in Harper's Ferry. Mm. Douglas, on the other hand, delivers kind of a warning to Brown. Obviously, he understands that he can't necessarily stop what Brown is intending to do, but he essentially equates Harper's Ferry to a steel trap that if Brown goes through with his plan, he's not going to get out of. So why does John Brown choose Harper's Ferry and, and what goes down when he arrives? There's a lot of reasons why he chooses Harper's Ferry. The two main reasons is going to be its facilities and its location, mm -hmm. right? Harper's Ferry at that point in 1859 is a industrial town, very much booming. It's in its prime, if you will. The Harper's Ferry Armory and Arsenal, Federal Armory and Arsenal, one was the number one employer in the town of Harpers Ferry. Two, it was one of two federal armory and arsenal sites in the nation at that time. They were producing weapons and then storing them in facilities to later be used to arm soldiers in the event of conflict, whether that was overseas, whether that was, you know, for future conflicts that the nation would address. You have the Mexican-American War, and then you have future conflicts kind of nestled in between the Battle of 1812 all of this stuff kind of nest within Harper's Ferry. On top of that, you have transportation in the area. You have the CNO Canal that kind of cuts through and that was competing with the B&O Railroad, also known as the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. And that railroad provided supplies, provided resources, provided workers to the town. And so you have this central hub of activity. Now going into location, Harper's Ferry at that point resides in Virginia. Right across the Potomac River is the state of Maryland. When John Brown was campaigning his ideal, his plan for a raid on Harper's Ferry, he is quoted as saying, I will be taking the war into Africa. Africa in this analogy being the South. And so to John Brown attacking Harper's Ferry, he not only can attack the Federal Army and Arsenal, then procure supplies, weapons for his raiders and emancipated slaves. He is also attacking the literal connection from north to south. He is attacking this border town, if you will. Mm -hmm. it, how does it really pan out when he arrives? So he arrives under an alias. He arrives as Isaac Smith. He kind of poses himself as this farmstead, the shepherder that came from New York. He, how, he's very much undercover. How well does that work? I mean, he's fairly famous by this point, isn't he? 
he he grows out a beard during this time to kind of provide that alias he has family you know he has three of his sons and some other extended family come over to the farmstead to kind of pose off as i'm just a normal farmer right yeah these are my you know sons these are my family members are just helping run the house and all of that. His men would hide out in the attic of the Kennedy farm, which is mm-hmm. one of our facilities here in Harpers Ferry. It's unfortunately not open at the time, hopefully in the future. I don't have a date for when. Sure. Right. They would hide up in the attics. They would hide out in the barns for that entire summer that in 1859, when Brown arrives in Harpers Ferry under the alias of Isaac Smith. Right, they're hiding out, posing under this cover. The raiders themselves start to lose morale, and even worse, there is actually word that gets out that this might be happening, hmm. and it ends up on the governor of West Virginia, uh, the governor of Virginia's desk. And the only reason that no investigation comes from it is the governor didn't think it was a real thing. He <laughs> kind of just dismissed it. It's a very like funny tidbit in history. Yeah. Um, but the Raiders themselves lost morale over the course of a few months, and it started to look like the raid itself wasn't even going to happen. Mm-hmm. But the Raiders ended up counseling their leader, counseling John Brown, in August, and through their talks, through just meeting with them, being reminded of why they were there, the Raiders agreed to follow John Brown, agreed to follow what they refer to him as the old man into through mm-hmm. with his plan it's interesting so what are some of the ramifications of john brown's execution there's a lot to that question honestly i would i would ask for like are you asking for the nation are you asking for the townspeople his immediate family the secret because there's ripples throughout (laughs) yeah I, i would i would be interested in the nation of like immediately how does it change things around the country? It changes a lot of things. I think more so than Brown's raid, the mm-hmm. trial of John Brown did a lot more to influence the nation at hand because John Brown's trial is really interesting if you get into the specifics of it. John Brown and seven of his men were captured at the end of John Brown's raid. They were taken to nearby Charlestown, which is about a 10 minute drive from us today. Yeah. They're put in the prison cells. Less than a week later, they're taken to trial, but they're tried against the state of Virginia, Hmm. despite attacking a federal facility. Normally, if you attack a federal facility, you are tried tried by the the federal federal government. Exactly. You're tried in the federal court system. However, the president at the time, President James Buchanan, realized that if John Brown was tried in a federal court, then the government would have to rule on the subject of slavery, rule on where the government stands. Yeah. And that was not a conversation that Buchanan wanted to have, especially with the election year of 1860 approaching. On top of that, he sympathized with Virginia's governor. He sympathized with Virginians who wanted to try John Brown. Yeah. And so he ends up being tried against the state He's tried for murder, treason, and conspiracy to incite slave rebellion. And the actual trial is broadcast throughout the nation because there's special telegraph lines set up in Charlestown broadcasting what is happening to the nation. 
And so it's considered one of the first criminal court cases on a mass media scale. And depending on where you are in the nation, depending on your previously set beliefs, you're going to walk away with different opinions on Brown. Even yeah. in abolitionist circles, there are people who don't sympathize with what Brown did. There are abolitionists who agree with his message, but don't agree with the methods, with the reasons why, yeah. or the methods used. So like shooting or attacking people directly, they don't agree with that message. There are Northerners who growing into this society tolerate slavery. They don't think it has a place in the North, but they will tolerate the institution versus in the South, even in Virginia, it's pretty split depending on where you are. The analogy that I like to use when I'm giving interpretive program, when I'm talking about it, I will, you know, bring two sides of the table. You have a person named Abraham Lincoln, very well known. Abraham Lincoln understood John's, John Brown's morals, but he didn't agree with the methods used, but he could understand, he could sympathize where Brown was coming from. Yeah. And then on the other side of that spectrum, you have people like Stonewall Jackson and John Wilkes Booth. John Wilkes Booth and Stonewall Jackson disagreed completely with Brown, right? They didn't agree with his ideology. They didn't agree with his morals, but they respected him. They respected that Brown believed in what he set out to do to the point that he was willing to, to stand and die for his cause. There was a level of respect that they showed him. They didn't agree with him. They attended his execution, Yeah, but they still respected him. It, it, I'm sure it doesn't help matters that if this is being broadcast nationwide, you've just now given a platform to somebody that's clearly very charismatic can get people to follow him and he could just put his message out there. Exactly. And that was part of the reason why Brown wanted this trial. And I think he understood the position that he was in when he was in court. Yeah. How does the country as a whole react to the execution? I know we kind of touched on that, but like, I'm sure there's, there's various reactions across the country. You talked about how Stonewall Jackson and, and John Wilkes Booth have their own reaction, a little bit of Lincoln's. Is there any, like middle ground reaction to where it's a little bit of both? I think honestly, it really depends on where you look. There is, for Brown himself, especially in the Northern side, abolitionist groups, again, they, some disagree with the methods. In terms of the secret six, like going back to them, yeah. they didn't know he was going to attack Harper's Ferry. They didn't know the extent of what he had planned right out of fear of persecution some of them flee over to canada because they just they don't know what the initial reaction is going to be when it they when the world finds out oh hi by the way we funded that yeah you have that initial reaction you have as well just in the nation as a whole the subject of slavery as an institution is brought to the forefront of the conversation Ironically, not what President James Buchanan wanted, but ended up happening for the election year of 1860. Yeah. It's not his intention. It ends up just being what plays out. Historian-wise, you know, people will debate how much influence Brown's actions had on that. They will debate how much John Brown's actions affected 
you know, what led up to civil war. You know, you have some historians that state, you know, Brown's actions essentially accelerated, brought the war to occur 20 years before it would have even happened historically-wise. Yeah. All-encompassing, all-echoing, I would say. And depending yeah. on where you are, and even going into slavery itself as the institution, right? The number one import-export for Virginia at that point are slaves. Yeah. So Brown is not only challenging an institution, he is challenging an economic factor. It's challenging a way of life. And so that's adding to what the nation is going to have to reconcile with. Yeah. So my next question is, with sort of that cloud that hangs over after his raid and the connotations over Harper's Ferry, how, how does the town regroup from it? So to put into perspective, in Harper's Ferry in 1859, prior to the raid, there is one volunteer militia group in the area. And even then, it's pretty loosely formulated. Like there are members, but they are not like patrolling or anything like this. Yeah. After the raid, after, you know, October 18th, when they finally capture all of John Brown's raiders, that number of militias explodes to four. Yeah. Overnight, it's almost like a, a switch flips off, right? On top of that, the townspeople themselves feel directly attacked because it's not just John Brown attacking a, a federal institution. He attacked Harper's Ferry. Yeah. That's personal. And for a lot of people in Harper's Ferry, there's mixtures of confusion. There's mixtures of anger, being upset not understanding or just feeling betrayed in a sense mm -hmm. there is actually a a document a letter from one of the townspeople written on the day of john brown's execution on december 2nd to family members essentially the townsperson telling them that the old man was hanged he doesn't understand why he would go through with it what his plan was to begin with especially as the raid itself unfolded and essentially was corralled back into what is known today as John Brown's fort, right? Yeah. Not understanding what his plan was, what he intended to to convey, but you know, it's sort of he's it, dead it, now. Yeah, it's interesting because it's sort of the same questions that you know these places will ask after a natural disaster of you know, well, why here? What did we do to deserve it? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So what is the importance of Harper's Ferry during the Civil War and how many times does it change? Hands. So yeah, <laughs> the, the number of times it changes is going to be different depending on who you ask. Yeah. There are individuals that say, you know, it changes about eight different times during the Civil War. Most of the time it's in union hands. Some will go as far as to say it changes 14 times. It's a constant back and forth. Harper's Ferry, I would argue, is really, in terms of its Civil War battle history, it's a thorn on the side that has to be addressed. Yeah. And what I mean by that, and I'm going to take the words from Robert E. Lee's mouth and Stonewall Jackson's mouth, when they are discussing plans to attack Harper's Ferry in 1862, 
it is a great place to defend. It is a absolutely awful place to attack yeah. for a number of reasons. Where I am currently in Harpers Ferry, the lower town area, right? I'm at the lowest point in the area. I'm at the lowest point in West Virginia at that time, right? Yep. If you control any of the mountainous areas, so let's say you control Maryland Heights in particular, if you control that structure, if you manage to hold that structure, you can defend you Harpers Ferry yeah. easily. Yeah. You you just have to retreat over the mountain and shoot down at them. Who's going to stop you? <laughs> right? There's a lot of military movements, especially with 1862, because at that point, the Union has that under control. And the Battle of 1862 ends with the Union surrendering because they didn't defend Maryland Heights. They defended yeah. Bolivar Heights, which strategically was a miss ends up with the biggest surrender of U.S. federal forces until World War II. In terms of Harpers Ferry itself, right, I mentioned before, we have the B&O Railroad, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Here in Harpers Ferry, it's considered a weak link because like I mentioned before, you can bring in supplies, you can bring in workers, you can bring in people. That railroad connects all the way to Baltimore, connects all the way to D.C., the capital connects all the way out to the Midwest towards Ohio. You demolish that railroad. Harpers you Ferry cut off starves. supplies. Yeah, yep. exactly. You just completely eliminate that route to begin with, right? You can't transport people. You can't transport supplies. And it does come up again for 1864 in Harpers Ferry for that Civil War battle. Yeah. That was essentially part of the Confederacy's, one of the last attempts to seized DC as collateral, as hostage, if you will, because that railroad just connects all the way through. It's easy to transport supplies and people. If you seize the Capitol as the Confederacy, you can hold the president, you can hold Congress, you can Mm -hmm. hold the Senate hostage, and you can negotiate a separation of the Union. Yeah. That doesn't end up happening. The general's in control of the area, the Union generals end up defending Harper's Ferry long enough for federal troops to be sent over to Monocacy. The Confederate forces end up having to roundabout towards Frederick for that battle in 1864. And then that gives the Union enough time to essentially fortify the capital. It's really funny that that even happened because Ulysses S. Grant, who had heard about this force moving in, Almost didn't take it seriously. Yeah. You'd think he'd learn his lesson from Shiloh or something like that. You would think. I, I guess not. I guess like word of mouth wasn't good yeah. enough unless like you had somebody who was ragged right in front of you. Yeah. I can't speak for him. Well, kind of two things. One, I have a whole lot of friends that are going to be very happy. You mentioned Monocacy. They're big fans of that battle and the battlefield. And the second thing is, is I you're sort of talking about the, you know, the importance of Harper's Ferry and how strategically it works to attack and defend. I think it's telling that Lee sends Jackson, his arguably best general to go and take it. I mean, he sees that this is going to need someone skilled enough. The additional thing too is for, for 1862, at least the one that Jackson involves himself in Mm -hmm. that Harper's Ferry itself going back to that illusion uh, of a 
a thorn on Robert E. Lee's side. Reason for that is for his Maryland campaign, right? He's entering through the state. He's already in Frederick. He's continuing his campaign north. Yeah. If things don't turn out well, if he needs a retreat route, he's going to have to go back the way he came. He can't really do that if there's a Union garrison not yeah. far away from Frederick. So it's already a nuisance to deal with. Jackson's troops, along with two other generals that fight for that, the Confederacy in that area, their troops would later be sent to further north for the Battle of Antietam. So that's mm -hmm. where that connection is. So everything's kind of connected in terms of Civil War history. Yeah. The battles at Harper's Ferry are very minor, but they serve a bigger purpose, right? They're part of a moving puzzle piece. Yeah, because really, if, if Harper's Ferry is is not in at least Confederate hands, Lee has no way back, which his battle plan for Antietam was questionable anyways, because why would you only give yourself one escape route and defend against a river? But that's another issue. But that does bring me to the next question, which is what was the effect of West Virginia statehood on Harper's Ferry? So it's, it's a lot. <laughs> it kind of goes back to... Even before the, the Civil War, it goes back to, to Brown, it goes back to the conversation of the future of slavery, the institution of yeah. slavery. When the election year of 1860 passes, Abraham Lincoln wins the presidential election, it starts that domino effect of Southern states seceding, beginning with South Carolina. The state of West Virginia itself is sort of divided on the issue. You have... Yeah. A good portion of Virginians, particularly in the western side of Virginia, who sympathize with the Union, who being more a little bit more industrialized than the eastern side, which kind of focuses a little bit more on farming, on plantations, right? There's no necessarily need for the institution of slavery to some of them, to most of them. And that is, comes to a head, especially when the state of Virginia votes to secede in yep. April and what ends up happening after the state of Virginia secedes and joins the Confederacy a group of pro-union Virginians petitions asking to form their own government they get that government formed and then they ask to apply for statehood yeah because the constitution says that the original state that Virginia would have to get permission for a new state to be formed out of it Yes. I've heard a lot of arguments saying it's really not legal what West Virginia did. Who cares? It's over with. Yeah. So the going back to Virginia, they voted to secede from the Union in 1861. You have these Virginians that bring up, mm, well, they're, they're essentially saying, no, we want to form our own government. We, we sympathize with the Union. We don't know why this happened. The state of yeah. Virginia, again, is very well divided on this issue. Mm -hmm. And they petitioned for statehood. It's not until 1863, uh, 1863 that they are recognized yep. as their own as their own state in, in the Union. In terms of Harper's Ferry's history, you have Jefferson County, which is what we reside in currently, and you have not too far away Berkeley County. Yeah, our counties in this area do not officially join West Virginia until 1871. Yeah, reason being the state of Virginia declared that despite the counties voting to join West Virginia, 
that them joining was not a legal move, a legal maneuver, because for Virginians, they believe that there were a lot of Union soldiers in those areas that basically influenced that vote. And it gets so bad that it ends up being a U.S. Supreme Court case, yeah. Virginia versus West Virginia. And the Supreme Court rules in the favor of West Virginia, in the favor of the counties. The counties are then admitted to West Virginia, and the rest is history. But it's very funny how that yeah, works I, out. I think just here a couple years ago, so in that Supreme Court case, they actually ruled that West Virginia has to pay Virginia its state debt off. Mm-hmm. And I think just here a couple years ago that that debt finally got paid off. Better late than never, I suppose. Yeah, I, I mean it was a slow pay. I think I don't think they paid very much every year, but it was still it was just here a couple years ago. Um, so what are some of the biggest challenges facing the park? I would say there is one major challenge to the park in particular, and it's mm-hmm. going to be just. Our, our visitor services and especially getting people out to the park. Now I've sure. been working here for a couple of months and I've worked at a lot of other national parks, right? I've worked a lot in New Mexico. I've worked a lot in the wilderness. So for example, I worked at Fires Caldera. I've worked at the Gila Cliff Dwellings National Monument, which really is in the middle of nowhere. It's literally at the end of the road. I've worked at Haleakala National Park on Maui, which is split into two different locations. I've lived in Yellowstone. I've lived in the Grand Canyon. I've basically been around a lot. When I say that Harper's Ferry is very confusing to visit, I mean that quite literally. I've I've experienced the confusion. (laughs) Yes. So the number one thing that challenges us right is just like getting people to the park and more importantly having them know where they can go or like where they need to to park what they can see and do what services are available to them basically over the the next few months over the next few years and of course now we we're, we're working our best to address that, trying to communicate directly. Oh, this is where you can park. You know, you can park in these areas. You know, this is the lower town area. You can drive down over there, but parking is very limited. You know, you can park over at the train station as long as you are not in an Amtrak passenger space. Mm-hmm. Right? You can do that because that is a parking lot that we operate, that we own. Also got to make sure you're not parking in any merchant areas. It's been a constant struggle it's been a constant challenge moving forward but we are working to address that 100 percent, absolutely yeah so my last question is and i think we have about six and a half minutes left what would you say to someone considering coming to visit the park so there's a lot for everything here in harper's ferry there's no real limit as to what you can see and do here right you can If you're a hiker, we have a ton of trails that you can go out and explore. The Appalachian Trail itself actually carves through the park, Mm -hmm. carves through the town of Harper's Ferry. So if you want to say, oh, I hiked the Appalachian Trail from Maryland to West Virginia, you can literally say that. It's just a five-minute walk, right? (laughs) They don't need to know that. Your friends don't need to know that. But you can kind of like humble brag that as much (laughs) as you will. We also have just a huge plethora of history, right? It's not just the Civil War. It's not just John Brown. 
Myself, I tend to focus a little bit more on African-American history, focus a lot more on civil rights. You have Store College, which is one of the first institutions in the United States to welcome students, regardless of race, regardless of sex, wow. admitted students in starting in 1867, mm-hmm. all the way through 88 years. You have very famous graduates from that institution, from the president of Nigeria. Don't ask me his graduating year. <laughs> but you have individuals like that. You have J.R. Clifford, who was one of the first African-American men to meet the West Virginia bar mm. as a lawyer. You also have graduates like Don Redman, who his influence, his work with the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra, and then later on on his own orchestra, working with other inspiring musicians essentially led to the creation of the genre of swing music that we are familiar with today. Wow. That's just one tiny aspect. Yesterday, which I'm going to date this, you know, today is August 22nd. Yesterday, August 21st, we had NAACP members meet over on the Murphy Chambers farm doing a pilgrimage in the steps of the Niagara movement, which Mm. met over here in 1906 on their anniversary, walking on John Brown's fort in remembrance of what they stood for, the Niagara movement, then later becoming what we know today as the NAACP. Yeah. Wow. So there's just a lot of history here. There's a lot to see and do out over here. Even if it's just going to the point where you can see Free States, Two Rivers, One Park, that in itself is a very memorable experience. Yeah. Well, that is all I have for us. Thank you very much for joining us, and we look forward to seeing what comes up next for you guys. Sounds good. It was great talking to you. You too.